Hey, are you ready to demonstrate your organization's commitment to data protection and government? And I mean your company, not just you. Boost Brand Trust with AI certification, incorporating principles from industry standards like NIST and the OECD. And you can navigate all of those privacy regulations confidently with TrustArc's robust AI governance solutions. Get a trustee certified privacy seal for your company, signifying organization's commitment to responsible data practices. With trustees' proven methodology over years, you can achieve compliance with AI laws around the world and also enhance your general privacy posture. Secure your brand's competitive advantage with a trusted seal now. Get AI certified today. Visit trustart.com slash AI dash certified. That's trustart.com slash AI dash certified. You're listening to Serious Privacy by Trustart. Please welcome our hosts, Paul Breitbarth and Kay Royal. Last week, the European Data Protection Board adopted its guidance on international data transfers post schrems 2, and the European Commission released the long-awaited draft of the new standard contractual clauses. While you will hear some discussion on both documents in this week's regular episode with Professor Paul Schwartz, we thought these issues are important enough to release a special extra episode of Serious Privacy, and that what is, that's what you're getting today. Everything you want to know about what will happen next in the world of international data transfers, how to read and understand and apply the new standard contractual clauses, and what can be done with supplemental safeguards, or not, Kay and I discuss it all with the Future of Privacy Forum's Gabriella Zanfir. My name is Paul Breitbart. And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to Serious Privacy. So, Gabriella, it's absolutely a delight to have you back on the show. Thank you for joining us today. Hello, everyone. Hi, Paul. Hi, Kay. It's such a pleasure being back on, on your podcast and, you know, on my favorite topic of them all, international data transfers. <laughs> Here's an unexpected question. What do you need to throw away? I need to throw away. Wow. What? What? Yeah. Oh my goodness, I'm just, that, that really is throwing me off a bit. I suppose all sorts of, I'm looking here around, and I see many boxes from, you know, online ordering. So <laughs> I'm thinking, yes. All the Amazon boxes? Yes. Not necessarily. I also have a, a box from artists that does Christmas cards. You know, I wanted to go with someone that's Ooh. a bit more indie and sort of has a personal touch. Very yeah. nice. So, Paul, what about you? What do you need to throw away? I'll probably need to go through my clothes cupboard and, and start sorting everything out that I haven't worn for a year and put, make sure that they go to the Salvation Army. All the clothes are still good, but maybe I don't wear them anymore. Or they don't fit anymore with all the extra COVID keys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say books. I am an avid, avid reader, and even though I read everything on Kindle now, I still have boxes upon boxes upon boxes upon boxes of paperback books that I have carried from Mississippi to Tennessee to Arizona to Texas to California and back to Arizona. <laughs> I need to get rid of a lot of books, but I keep them 
because I don't necessarily remember all the books that I like to read. Books. No, no. Books are here to stay. Well, apparently I can't either. So <laughs> <laughs> let's all go from our, our shopping and our books and our clothes to the substantive matter of the day, which we plan to produce this podcast pretty quickly, Gabriella. So it's going to be a mad rush for editing. But Paul, hit us with the first question, because, I mean, we have nothing to talk about this happened recently. Oh, no, nothing at all, apart from maybe the paper of the European Data Protection Board. Actually, I should say two papers of the European Data Protection Board. So let's start with the recommendations for international transfers. This is the long-awaited paper that everybody had hoped would be available on July 17 or maybe July 18, but not much longer. But of course, also the European Data Protection Board, all our former colleagues, had to take some time to come up with the right ideas of what actually are the implications of the court case, what can and cannot be done, and what supplementary measures could be put in place. And if you look at the at the draft uh, recommendations, because officially it is still a draft, you see, first of all, the six steps that you have to take, basically, to assess your international transfers and see whether they still are compliant. And then you see a whole overview of possible supplementary measures. Gabriella, what is what is your initial conclusion when you read the papers? Are international transfers still somewhat possible or are we just screwed? <laughs> that is a fairly good question, Paul. And my conclusion is that the EDPB really took the strength of judgment to the letter and very seriously. And it's going to be very difficult to transfer personal data outside of the European Union. That's a fact. But I think uh, to my mind, and I am convinced that to your mind as well, Paul, on the 16th of July, when um, we read the judgment, we already saw that. For example, I already saw that what the court found is actually applicable not only to standard contractual clauses, but it technically shifts the entire Chapter 5 because it creates Mm -hmm. that very high standard, essentially equivalence, that needs to be achieved and states that essentially equivalence needs to be achieved by all of the transfer mechanisms in Chapter 5. And I think this is quite impactful. And this is what makes it very difficult to rely on any of the transfer mechanisms in reality, not only on ACCs, to be able to transfer data outside of the EU. And I would say what the EDPB did was, you know, confirming what the court said. I was also observing that the EDPB was not willing to have a second look at Article 49 derogations uh, in this context now. Now that we know the Court of Justice says that under EU law, whatever mechanism for transfer you use, you need to obtain essential equivalence. Does this mean that we should have a second look at derogations? Do they somehow increase in (laughs) importance? And usability. Exactly. Uh, Now that we have this kind of shift, I do see a shift because we, uh, you know, used to know that essential equivalence is the standard for adequacy. And then we used to know that 
for the rest of the transfer mechanisms, we need not to undermine the level of protection. We need to bring safeguards, you know, to ensure that personal data are protected continuously when they travel. However, now we found out that this also means that they need to be essentially equivalently protected as they are in the EU. So, yeah, this is, this is uh, where we are now. It's, it's really uh, a very difficult situation for whomever needs to transfer personal data outside of the EU. So let's start maybe with the, with the steps to take, because that is um, probably what, what many companies hopefully have started already. But if they haven't, then that is certainly something that they, that they should get starting right now. And that is, first of all, to reassess all their business processes to understand their, their data transfers, what personal data is flowing from the European Union to any third country that is not adequate or even any third country that is adequate because that you need to know as well and document that properly. Then identify the transfer tools on which you are relying. So that could be adequacy, but it could also be one of the uh, contractual options from Article 46 and, and onwards, or even the derogations from Article 49. If Article 46 is used, so the contractual legal basis, then look at those and identify which of the ones it is that you want to use. And for some of them, it may mean that you need to go back to the Data Protection Authority to get their specific approval. That is not the case for standard contractual clauses. But for example, if you use ad hoc contracts or if you use BCRs and you are implementing supplementary measures, then you need to get the approval of the DPA as well. Adopt those supplementary measures internally, operationalize them, and also make sure that you reevaluate anything, everything at uh, appropriate intervals. And that is a lot of work to be done to look at all your processes again and make sure that you actually understand all the data flows, including to any, any sub-processors that might be taking place, because as a data controller, that's your responsibility as well. I was pretty surprised that the paper is so much focused on, on the data controller. You need to do this as a controller. You need to do that as a controller. And I had expected a bit more, a bit more balance between the role of the data exporter and the data importer. Yes, absolutely. And there are, you know, if we are to start analyzing step by step and we will see <laughs> hurdles at every step. So I will start with the mm-hmm. first one. Know your transfers. Pretty straightforward. First look, yeah. right? And we already know that everybody should have a record of, of processing activities. And, you know, starting from there, you should be able to um, track what transfers you're engaging in. But I think that, you know, it's going to be quite difficult to know your transfers also in the sense of where they go intermediary, because we, we, well, we see in the recommendations that you also need to take into account, let's say, uh, the intermediary points where that your data touch, right? So not necessarily only the destination. And this is one of the, in one of the use cases, there is a bit of a touch on this. But then there's also the fundamental question, Paul, what is an international data transfer? <laughs> yes. This is really fun. So know your transfers and, you know, Yes, but what is an international data transfer? And 
And once again, they have not defined it. Is. Uh, there is an entire annex with definitions, uh, but this definition is not there. And why this is uh, important, uh, folks? It's important because, first of all, there might be instances of processing that you wouldn't think they are transfers, but they are. And the EDPB is very clear this time in the recommendations that remote access from outside of the EU to data that's kept inside of the EU amounts to an international data transfer. And this is actually spelled out pretty clearly this time. Whereas in the FAQ uh, document after the judgment, we only had a sort of a parenthesis uh, under 2011. Mm -hmm. This time in paragraph 13, it's spelled out if you solely access data from outside of the EU, so for example, you have um, you know, a, an administrator that needs to sort of correct something in your database uh, in a server in Europe, but your administrator is in India or in the US, that amounts to a transfer. So you need to take that into account. But then there's also the super fundamental question of how, how do we deal with business to consumer relationships where you have a non-EU business and an EU consumer, and you are more or less under, uh, not more or less, but you are under an Article 3.2 uh, GDPR scenario, which, um, you know, is the extraterritorial touch of the GDPR. One of the extraterritorial touches of the GDPR says that the rules apply whenever a business offers services or monitors behavior or offers goods to an individual that's physically in the European Union, but the business, the controller, is outside of the European Union. So do we have a transfer of data in that scenario legally? I mean, technically, I, I presume we do have a transfer because if you offer services, online services from Morocco to uh, Europe, you know, you need to have some traffic, uh, a traffic mm -hmm. going from Europe to Morocco. But there is really not a lot of clarity on that. And we also know that EDPB has on its program already for two years or more an opinion about the interaction of Article 3.2 and Chapter 5. And that's a paper that we desperately need. At least many of the more consumer-focused companies really, really need that one. Kay, what's what's your first views upon reading these guidelines? I mean, Gabriella and I are are very much rooted in in all these European law discussions. But for you, as a non EU person, what's what's what are your views? You know, I find my first impression when I read the guidance is that the EU has abandoned what I have long respected them for, which was a very pragmatic and practical view on the measures that organizations could take to protect data. And it no longer seems like they are taking a very pragmatic approach. And that kind of flips my entire view of how the EU approaches data protection. I've always been very proud of the fact that they're very strong, but they're very practical. They understand that the law that they have in place and what they're requiring needs to be able to be put in place by companies. And up until this guidance, I kind of thought that even though it was a very, very strong law, that it was something that companies could do. 
people can abide by it. Now, if you take this and then you pile the next part on that we're going to discuss, I'm beginning to wonder if they actually expect companies to follow this or are they just natively building in the ability that everyone's going to violate it, therefore they get to impose more fines or something. I'm really confused about it. I'll be honest. I'm really confused about it. And I shouldn't say that as a privacy person because I love protecting data and I don't need to say job security anymore. None of us need job security. No, I think there is enough to do for us to stay busy for the foreseeable future. There is plenty to do. But I think of the companies out there and I'm like, how on earth can they possibly meet this level? I especially, like I said, combined with the next part we're going to talk about, how can they possibly comply with this? Well, for me, the main surprise and the main challenge with the paper of the board is that they seem to completely move away from the risk-based approach on on, uh, which the GDPR is based. If we go back to the initial presentation of the GDPR and the very first drafts that were uh, discussed, but also the final version that was, that was adopted, you see that everything is based on identifying risks and taking measures that are appropriate to mitigate those mis- those risks in return. And if you right. look at these, very practical, practical but if you, pragmatic. You, if you look at these recommendations, one of the things the board emphasizes is that a risk-based approach for data transfers is not sufficient. Organizations, so they say in the paper, may not rely on subjective factors such as the likelihood of public authorities' access to the data in a manner not in line with EU standards. So if you cannot even take into account the likelihood, it means that your transfer risk should amount to zero. There can be no residual risk whatsoever. And I don't believe that that we live in a risk-free society in any situation. Right. There's risk everywhere, somewhere. I just, it, like I said, I'm just really confused. And I know that's not a very academic or scholarly approach to it, but I was not expecting this level of guidance on supplementary measures. And I'm with you. I don't see where companies can take residual risk down to Mm -hmm. a zero. That means there is no risk in the data, that everything they've put in place is perfect and there's nothing possibly that could ever happen to the data because there is absolutely zero risk. Gabriella? Yeah, I would say that originally international data transfer rules, as far as I know from all the legal literature I, I read, were meant to be a vehicle for the data outside of the EU in a way that right. you know continues to protect the data and it's not just sort of a wild west once the data is it's outside of the EU. But the purpose of, of those rules was to be a vehicle for the data, you know, like a small plane that takes mm-hmm. data away, but you know, gives protections to it when it takes it away. It just doesn't sort of uh, throw it up in the air. So I think, you know, with the approach that the court took, and I I wouldn't sort of put a lot of this on the EDPB. The EDPB is really bound by what the court said. Whereas I agree, you know, there is a discussion about the risk-based approach. And absolutely, I I, I absolutely echo um, Paul's point and and, uh, Kay's point as well. But the court actually created this, sort of very difficult scenario by heightening the uh, level of protection to essential equivalence 
for all of the transfer mechanisms in Chapter 5. And even if you look at the um, document, the recommendations of the EDPB, this is mentioned, I think, in the second paragraph or the first paragraph, something like that, of the recommendations, as the point where they start from. And they send to that paragraph 92 from the court's judgment. And, uh, you know, this is, how, this is how the system. And this is where, for the first time, I had an existential crisis myself in July because, you know, I've been <laughs> sort of, I've been this ambassador of data protection law and, and how very carefully built it is and, and how it is actually meant to be flexible and to allow data to be used, but in a very, very responsible way and in a way that protects all of the rights of individuals. And then, you know, I think this was the first time when I, I, I saw this finding of the court and I said, hmm, this is not, this doesn't really <laughs> fit with uh, my uh, entire theory that I, I, I built and I believed in. Um, and, you know, I, I still continue to believe in because, yes. as we know, law evolves. But for me, this raising it the essential equivalence bar was really uh, a really big thing that I, I think it's funny that all three of us are essentially saying a lot of the same thing, that the, the beliefs we had in the law were very strong, and this guidance just somehow, it, yeah, the, it, the listeners can't see me airwave here. It but. doesn't completely add up to what we've become used to in, in, in recent months and years, and I think that is the struggle, and maybe a final version of the guidance will tone it down a little bit. Maybe they have taken that into account as right. well, taken the very extreme version right now, so that there is some room for maneuver <laughs> in the consultation phase. Now that, that's a tactic. It could be. I'm not sure it's true, and then I believe my own suggestion, but it could be, if I'm hopeful. The, the if you're the, hopeful. The second paper is, I think, also very relevant for a lot of organizations that, that start their assessment because it's not only looking at your own, your own business processes that you need to do, but you will also need to start doing third country assessments. It's pretty clear from, right. from the papers that it is not the European Data Protection Board that will tell you these countries are okay and these countries are not because everything is based right. on a case by case approach including the third country assessments. But right. they have also published together with the recommendations on, on the, the safeguards, an updated version of the working paper on the European essential guarantees, the first version of which Gabriella and I worked on, what, five years ago now, I think, um, analyzing, I don't know how many court cases uh, at the time, from from Schrems II to Klaas and others at the uh, European Court of Human Rights and Malone and, and going back well into the 1970s in any case. There are four main guarantees that need to be put in place before you can say that government access, which is an interference with the fundamental rights to privacy and data protection, before such an interference could be justified. So the processing should be based on clear, precise and accessible rules needs to be necessary and proportional. There needs to be independent oversight and there needs to be effective redress for the individual, effective remedies. And those four guarantees luckily remain unchanged. There is some, some further documentation on how to use them, but those are to be taken into account when companies 
start looking at third countries. Gabriela, coming coming back to you, is this, I mean, we were very happy when we came up with this test five years ago. Is this still the right test to use uh, this time around? I, I, I think so, but I would add to what you said, Paul, that I think those that should read this document primarily at this point are the governments that want to make things easier for them and for Europeans as well, because let's face it, I mean, there are a lot of Europeans that will suffer consequences <laughs> if all, all the data from, uh, you know, all of a sudden cannot other, under any way, shape of, or form leave Europe. And I think that what's in this document is primarily relevant for who is eyeing a legacy. Because there are clear indications in, in this case law that's being uh, analyzed uh, by the EDPD of what things need to happen in a jurisdiction that regulates uh, surveillance activities for whatever happens to be considered proportionate and to be considered as being essentially equivalent to what's um, happening uh, in Europe as well on that side of things. So, you know, in the national security area. So I would actually use that document primarily for this. And I would say, Paul, that there have been some developments um, since 2015 that are relevant And the most recent one that I can think of is La, La Quadrature du Net uh, and Privacy International. But, mm -hmm. and so both of them are important, but in La Quadrature du Net, and uh, these are two recent cases, two recent judgments from the Court of Justice of the EU. And in La Quadrature du Net, it's almost like the court provides for a menu of proportional measures that can be adopted by states when they look at access, accessing or retaining data indiscriminately for law enforcement purposes and for national security. I think it was needed to, to bring this document up to date. I have to confess, I did not have the time to really look close uh, into it. But I, I think it's important that the EDPB brought together in the document this latest uh, case law. So let's make let's make one thing perfectly clear, and that is the, the the fiction that is often understood by non-EU privacy professionals that the the case law of the European Court only looks at third country laws and is never critical of what is happening in Europe itself. That is well, you know, that that's what was going through my mind. Is Europe <laughs> well, does government surveillance too? Is this some sort of backdoor way to shut everybody else's surveillance off? No, I don't think so, because if you indeed look at the Privacy International and the Quadrature du Net cases, it is very clear that the court also points towards the EU governments for not complying with the fundamental rights to privacy and data protection. And although they cannot rebut the surveillance laws themselves directly, they can, they can say, well, the ways in which you have implemented the privacy legislation, in this case, the e-privacy legislation is insufficient to meet the standards that, that we hold all countries in the world to, including our own member states. Yes, yes, right. absolutely. So this was, you know, the key point to take away um, from these two cases. I mean, there are several key points, but one of them was that the court is just as serious about the national security of the member states, even though 
national security and national security policy and legislation are outside of the competencies of the European Union. However, the Court of Justice really expanded on its arguments on that um, the court already used some time ago in Teletu, uh, in the Teletu case, and said that, well, you know, the e-privacy directive establishes conduct for companies. Companies need, based on e-privacy directive, and any legislation following from it, because, for example, data retention legislation uh, now follows from the e-privacy directive in, in the sense that it's sort of an exception to the e-privacy directive to have an obligation to retain data for a certain period of time. And then that type of legislation that follows from this EU directive also allows or actually obliges companies to give access to governments to the data they retain on the basis of this, legi this, this legislation that's rooted in EU law. And this is where the court says, well, this means that whatever, you know, governments access, uh, whatever need they have to access data that's being uh, processed and retained on the basis of EU law, well, they will need to actually follow, you know, some uh, standards <laughs> on that. So, uh, in fact, these two cases, Privacy International, which is a UK-based case, and La Pajatudinet, which uh, is a France-based case, but also a Belgium-based case, because they are joint cases, actually looks at the laws in the national security uh, area of this three member states and former members, member states in the UK. So, you know, this is what the court says with regard to, but also uh, it said previously with regard to um, non-EU member states and their surveillance. So let's take a brief look at the supplementary measures that the European Data Protection Board lists. They already make clear it is not a limitative, uh, limitative list, so uh, more options are possible. The, they distinguish between technical, organizational, and contractual measures that can be put in place. Probably the most interesting ones are the technical, and others are more about transparency and transparency reporting and information duties if government access requests are received and, and how to deal with all of that, liability issues as well. But on the technical side, that is also where a lot of organizations had hoped to find a solution to the, the transfers conundrum that, that we're facing. And if the board makes one thing clear is that two of the most common business processes, namely storage in a third country, as long as the data is still being used also in that third country, or access to data from a third country, that for both, they do not see any technical safeguards that would be sufficient um, to get us to the level of essentially equivalent. Right. Oh, to be clear, not even encryption. And this is a point that uh, yeah. the clearly makes. And it, it really seems when you read um, the analysis on, on those two use cases, and especially the one where you need access to data in the clear for a cloud service provider that needs to provide a service and they need to you know, do some processing with the data in the clear, in the cloud, outside of the EU. It seems that only homomorphic encryption can solve that. And this is really, at this point, it's just not scalable. You cannot use homomorphic encryption on, on large scale. As far as I know, obviously, I'm not a very technical person. 
but I'm, I'm reading and following that debate around homomorphic encryption, and it's, it's not where we are. It's really not scalable. Uh, the EDPB says that we cannot use encryption as long as the importer has the key, which also reads to me, again, a non-technical person, so I may, I, I may be wrong, but it reads to me that you cannot use end-to-end encryption because one of the, I mean, both, <laughs> one of the ends, the receiving ends will have the key and, you know, they can sort of unencrypt the message and use the data. And that also is not one of the uh, safeguards that can be used. Um, yeah, apparently you can't unlock the data to use it. Yes. So apparently encryption only works if you store encrypted data in the cloud outside of the U or in the U, but give access to uh, someone, so you are out from outside of you, so you are in, in a transfers uh, scenario. Basically, the only access that can be given is physical access. So anytime somebody needs to access, for example, my personnel file, if somebody from TrustArc needs to access my personnel file, they need to travel to Europe uh, and access it within the country to ensure that that is done. So basically, somebody should fly to Europe every month to ensure that I get paid, which seems a bit... Or twice a month. Or twice a month or... Yeah, even whatever more the pay- frequently, yeah, but exactly. I mean, that, that seems a bit overdoing it in, in, in my view. And especially for those low risk and fairly common business processes, right. indeed, I would have thought that the board would be a bit more lenient taking that risk-based approach. But maybe the, the consultation that is ongoing, you can submit your comments until November 30th that that will actually be be somewhat influential going forward. And, and I would say, Paul, to that, and it's really helpful that you just brought up the example of uh, payroll and payments, you know, I and mean, there are companies that have employees in Europe and they need to pay them. They need to keep track of their HR yeah. dealings, you know, reports <laughs> and so on. And you know, what happens to that? It's just... Right. Will that really stop? And that if that is really the case and all transfers, let's imagine that everybody will follow this, you know, what, what just happened with the judgment and now the recommendations and everything stops or is somehow moved into this sort of fortress that Europe wants to build around itself. I don't know. But if everything stops and until everything can be built again, a lot of lives will be affected. And this is one yeah. of the, again, the main things about data protection is that it has to function in society and it has to uh, balance rights, right? So you and all the other employees that happen to work for multinational, multinational companies, wherever they may be, you know, have a fundamental right to work and be paid. <laughs> and that's that's that. And, you know, people have the right to travel and they have the right to book their travel. Hopefully at one point they will also be able to travel. No, uh, to travel, once right? the pandemic ends, people have the right to receive treatment, you know, to take part in, in clinical trials and develop vaccines, you know. Yeah, exactly. And I was going to say, and it's very similar to here in the U.S. with HIPAA, when 
the most practical part about HIPAA is HIPAA is there to protect the data. HIPAA is not there to prevent people from getting medical treatment. And that, that seems to be something missing in the direction that we're going with the guidance here is, you know, there is a purpose for data. This is why I'm a bit, you know, at pause because the GDPR itself even has a reference to contact tracing and the, the, it's incredible. There is a recital, I don't know who put it in there, that actually says that, you know, for contact tracing purposes and other public health security purposes, you can actually use contractual necessity as a derogation for transfers. You know, if you need an international data transfer for those purposes. So my, my reading has always been that GDPR is actually common sense. And I, I've defended it that yeah. way, and I have always talked about it that way. We're on the same page there. <laughs> Let's see what, what will happen with, with transfers now. You know, it's really because we might be in a situation where, you know, the judgment says what it says, the EDPD says what it says, but then... Everybody ignores it from DPAs to companies and you know, people. That could happen I, too, I, right? I can completely tell you that. And I use this example in the summer as well. But if my mom will not be able to communicate with me, and my mom is back in Europe electronically, you know, that's going to really affect uh, her. Yeah. Right. And you. Of course. But I'm now, you know, sort of trying to think about how Europeans will be affected in their daily dealings if we don't find a common sense approach. And data protection at its essence is about protecting the fundamental rights of individuals. Yes. And therefore the interest belongs to the individuals. And it seems like the individuals ought to be able to make a rational choice, which I know in some way goes in circles because who reads privacy notices, who knows what companies are doing. But if at its basis, it's fundamentally about individuals, it seems like there ought to be a way for individuals to have what they want. Yes, absolutely. So I do hope that in the end, either through the recommendations or I don't know how, but the common sense approach will uh, prevail. Uh, Because if we really take all of this and push this argument in practice, (laughs) you know, and it will be applied as it is written in these recommendations and the judgment, we will find ourselves in a, in a very absurd reality. Yeah, agreed. So will the new standard contractual clauses bring any solution? Will they help to, to move us forward again in the transfers world? I am afraid that no, they will not. And I say that because I am looking at step number three, in this six steps approach from the recommendations, where after you identify, so you map your transfer, you identify your transfer tool, and your transfer tool is an SEC, and you enter, you are having standard contractual clauses as your target to rely on. Step three is, is the transfer tool effective in the place of destination of your data? So even if your SEC is ideal, is perfect, 
you know, it's, you don't need to do anything. It's just perfect. You still need to look how that its SEC behaves in a, juris, in a given jurisdiction. And this is the essence of why the court says SECs are fine, because you can see how they act <laughs> depending on jurisdiction and context. So if you, you, you have the perfect SECs, but then you still have to take into account that national authorities or any sort of authorities are not bound by a contract between private parties. And you need to assess how that contract between private parties is impacted by the laws that the national authorities in a given country has to comply with. So this is where I see the, the um, difficulty, and it's absolutely great that we have updated clauses. We needed that after the GDPR. Mm-hmm. But in this particular situation, I don't know how much they can help, and especially with regard to transfers to the United States. You know, for, for the countries that don't have such a, an assessment given by the Court of Justice, it might be uh, workable. So, for example, you can transfer your data to Russia uh, more easily uh, than to the United States or to China. So, why not? <laughs> for those who haven't seen the new standard contractual clauses yet, also those have not been finalized. Also, they are still part of a on, of an ongoing consultation. This time until December 10th, we'll post all the links in the show notes where you can provide your responses. What I and please do indeed. What I what I really liked is that the new standard contractual clauses have a modular approach. So there are a few clauses that apply to every single scenario and some only in specific scenarios. Content-wise, I think they're fairly similar to what we've seen so far in the, the old text. But now, not only do we have controller to controller and controller to processor standard contractual clauses, but also processor to processor. So for your sub-processing situations, needed. as well as processor to controller standard contractual clauses. So if Which you are, are a non-EU data controller working with an EU-based data processor, also then there are specific standard contractual clauses that you can use. But also here, the commission makes fairly clear that the supplementary measures might still be required. The main difference that I still however, Gabriel, I'm not sure if, if you saw it too, maybe Kay, is that the commission does seem to take a risk-based approach for the standard contractual clauses, whereas the board does not. And, and that is, of course, something that could lead to a lot of conflict going forward. I have seen indeed that the Commission is, is open to the risk-based approach, and uh, I think that is not surprising. I, I'm also very curious to see how this will end up, you know, with uh, the SSCs being open for public consultation now, as well as uh, the EDPB recommendations. It's interesting to see if they will converge in the end, or if, you know, this approach will remain parallel. I'm starting to believe more and more in your theory that you proposed earlier that the EDPB may be taking an extreme approach, knowing that it's going to have to dial it back. But it means that maybe it doesn't have to dial it back from as far as it had taken a reasonable approach. Let's Only time will tell. Only time will tell. Can we expect any any written analysis from you on on all of these issues? That is an excellent question, Paul. I have been writing an analysis of the Shrimps to Judgment for months now. 
<laughs> I was 20 pages and only now I, I'm starting the privacy shield assessment uh, phase. And um, this oh, wow. is why I was not particularly surprised by the EDPB's recommendations because when I was looking at the judgment and reading it in very much detail, I already saw that contractual clauses, additional contractual safeguards will not be enough. You will need non-contractual supplementary measures. And this uh, comes from a couple of paragraphs there. It was very clear that whatever the court decided was actually applicable to the entire Article 46 safeguards because it made most of its findings on the basis of Article 46, Paragraph 1, which refers to all of the safeguards that are then detailed below under paragraph two. Uh, So, codes of conduct, BCRs, and so on. It was very clear to me that it will be uh, applicable to those as well. So hopefully, Paul, at one point, (laughs) I'll finish the analysis and and, and publish it, at least, you know, for the good of uh, research, if if for nothing else. We'll look forward to that. Thank you very much for joining us again with these very first comments on what is sure to be a a longer discussion in the the weeks going forward. As said, the consultations are open, the board consultation until the end of November, the European Commission's consultation on the clauses until December 10th. Please do provide your comments if you are dealing with international transfer issues. Please be as specific as you can in the scenarios that you are facing because that really helps the the discussion. I recall from my days in the Working Party 29, and I'm sure that's the same for Gabriella, that it sometimes was hard to come up with the real-life examples that people were facing and to discuss those because it was not something that we were dealing with on that daily basis. So do give your input to the consultations. It will be helpful. And then from there, we we will await the final versions of the documents. Thank you for listening to this extra episode of Serious Privacy. The regular episode will be in your in your podcast app tomorrow. So a lot to listen to this week. If you do like our series, please tell your friends and colleagues about us, rate and review us in your podcast app if you can. And should you have any questions or suggestions, please reach out to us via seriousprivacy at trustark.com or via Twitter at @podcastprivacy. You'll find Kay on Twitter as Heart of Privacy and myself as Paul B. Thanks for listening to us. Hear you soon. Um, goodbye. Bye, y'all. That was Serious Privacy. So, Kay, did you hear that the Trustark Trust Center is revolutionizing the way businesses manage trust? I did! And with the Trust Center, achieving customer trust is no longer a months-long process. It can be just days. Yeah. Have you been in a situation where a customer wanted information and you need to scramble to find everything? Just imagine all of that was at hand in one central hub with info on privacy, legal, security, compliance, system availability. Yeah, you can lower your legal, regulatory, and reputational risk with instant updates and speed up your sales cycle with private and public document sharing. 
Trust Center solves the problem of red tape and dependencies, ensuring your trust and safety information is accurate, compliant, and available. And you know the best part? You'll save time and cost. How often have you gone to multiple departments and it's taken weeks so you can remove bottlenecks and effortlessly streamline your efforts? Trust Center, trust becomes your key differentiator in today's digital economy. Experienced enhanced customer trust, operational speed, and efficiency while enjoying comprehensive coverage for diverse stakeholders. So why wait? Start streamlining trust management with TrustArc's Trust Center. Visit trustarc.com slash more dash trust. That is trustarc.com slash more dash trust. There's a lot of trust in that. A lot of trust.